0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined by a stalwart of the American chess scene. He is a Tennessee-based grandmaster. He's been a top player in the U.S. for decades and is a four-time participant in the U.S. championship. He also has a successful career outside of chess. He works in finance. I believe his current title is director of in the fixed-income department of TD Securities. Is that right, Alex? I forgot to check it with you. That, That's right. Okay. And to continue, he is Tennessee state champion. Uh, in 2018, he won the first senior Tournament of State Champions, which was modeled after the Denker Tournament of State Champions, which is a well-known tournament here in the U.S. that he was also the first winner of. He tied for second in the 2018 U.S. Open, and he is, as mentioned, the state champion of his new state of Tennessee. He's also an author, most recently, of the exchange french comes to life and he is a member of a three-generation chess family his dad was a master level chess player in the former soviet union and his son mitch is a uscf master so we've got lots to talk about with our guest let's welcome grandmaster alex fishbein to the show welcome alex
2: well, thank you for that introduction. I'm glad to be. Here.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to to finally chat. We chatted a little bit online, and uh, yeah, your your son uh, gave me a bad beat in a tournament <laughs> chess game a well, few years back. Maybe a little lucky. I don't know. <laughs> well. It's all part of the game, and he played a nice trick and then outplayed me in the end game. So well-deserved as far as I'm concerned, and uh, mm-hmm. and you you came by and took a look at it, although we didn't get a chance to, to chat much on that instance. Yeah. But anyway, Alex, like I said, lots to talk about because you've been so active, and if you don't mind, right. what I'd like to begin with is your your recent tournaments. I know you just played in Tennessee, but if you don't mind, I'm even more interested in you and Mitch's trip to Norway. Uh, you played yes. in the Norway um, Open in
2: Stavanger. Could you tell us about that trip? Yes, yes. We did go there in, I guess it was early June. Um, for me, it was a little bit special because I had I had actually played in Norway several times before, and or maybe twice or three times before. And that was the town where I made my final Grandmaster Norm back in 1991. 19, it was, it was uh, end of 91, early 92. So that was one of my best tournaments. I scored, you know, plus five in a small Swiss against a pretty strong field. And, you know, I felt like it would be a good place. And I, I like Scandinavia to begin with. I kind of, that's one of my favorite parts of the world. Um, for Mitch, it was interesting because not only is it a, you know, a trip abroad, but also he wanted to see, you know, the the, the Norway Chess A group was, or the, the top group was going on at the same time. Magnus Carlson was playing. Vishy Anand was playing. Uh, MVL, a couple of other people that, that he knows very well. So, he, you know, it was just to see that, you know, we got a chance to kind of go into the room where they play. It was not the same building, but it was right across the street, you know, and to kind of watch that live. So that was a good experience as well. Yeah. We we're trying to get a selfie with Carlson, but didn't, weren't able to do it.
0: <laughs> Understandable. I've seen some videos <laughs> where he's walking in and out of tournaments and it always just seems yeah. like he's like yeah. swarmed by people. But you.
2: Yeah, we probably could have done it if we really tried very hard, but
0: yeah, I don't know. But you mentioned that on Facebook he did come and visit your playing hall at some point as well. Uh,
2: that was kind of funny. Yeah, he, 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 you know I don't know what who all the organizers there are and, and how well he knows all of them, but I'm sure there were different organizers in each section, and he just sort of came by to, you know, we were in a different building, and he kind of came by to the area where the where the where where, where not not the area where the, specific area where the games were, but kind of like the the hallway outside to talk to the to. Somebody, I guess, the organizers, and but every once, once his face, like once he showed up, the place kind of like stopped, and everybody just stopped thinking or playing, and everybody just looked at him as if he's some kind of like no, nobody was thinking or playing while he was standing.
0: And there. this is during tournament games.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, but but he, you know, he he was spent like five or ten minutes, and you know, whatever. Amazing. I, I didn't. you yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was interesting. I mean, certainly. Um, I mean, the, the trip was good. Uh, we the results were kind of average, but um, we didn't finish very well. We started well, didn't finish as well as we could have. But both of us. But it was a great trip, good experience, um, and a little bit different feeling to play in Europe than here for many reasons. But um, you know, it was a lot of fun. So, how, what was different about it? What struck you, Alex? Well, there. First of all, they're very serious about preparation, I think, even more than here. I mean, it could be part, partially because um, they didn't really know me. You know, they here a lot of players already know who I am and know what openings I play, whereas there they're kind of, they don't know me as well, so they're perhaps spending more time to, pre- pre- to prepare because of that. But I had a couple of people catch me in the opening like 16 moves deep. Wow. In variations that I had never played in previous games that were published in the database so which is very unusual here like you you know they can look at my blitz games i guess in various various places but you know the level of preparation was really deep
0: is that where you think they found it from your blitz games or like how did they even how did they even do it um
2: yeah one of them i do i have no idea the other um i might have played some blitz Blitz games entitled tuesday or something i don't know but but it's like the level of just the depth of preparation, trying to predict what I'm going to do. Uh, I didn't lose. I, I drew both of those games. They were just somewhat weaker players, but just and, and it was interesting. I, I actually both of them asked for a post mortem after the game, which is also unusual here in America. You don't you don't have that there. There seem to be more post mortems, and then, you know they were telling me they were pretty honest about it. Yeah, you know you I, you play this line which is no good. You play this line which is no good. <laughs> So I figured I'd do this, and you know, it's was, it was it was it was definitely refreshing uh, to see
0: that. And was it one game per day, or were there sometimes one game like- per
2: day? Except for one one day, there was two games, but generally one game okay. per day. So that probably contributed to how much prep they did as well. Sure, but I mean, I was doing prep also, but it was it was they were pretty they were pretty intense, and you know, um, it's a serious tournament. They take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, not not to say we don't, but um, you know,
0: and. You know, Grandmaster yakabagar has been vocal on Facebook about he called it a tidal wave of Indian players traveling the world. Young, talented, underrated Indian players uh, uh, in
2: European tournaments um, in particular. Did you guys encounter that? Well, Prague was the winner of the tournament. He was a top seed. Prague Nanda. I wouldn't necessarily call him a young under. I mean, he, I don't know. He might be underrated, but he's he's already at yeah, known a quantity, level. yeah, known quantity. Yeah, known quantity. Yeah, he won the tournament. There are actually a couple of players from not from India but from other Asian countries like Uzbekistan possibly and maybe one other country um, somewhere there that were that were quite a bit underrated and were were in the running for first place. So there is a bunch of there is definitely a bunch of underrated kids from all you know from all over the world everywhere. Yeah, <clears throat> you know this is a phenomenon we kind of observed in the U.S. already, and I was under the impression that the U.S. had the most underrated kids because a lot of tournaments here are not FIDE rated. Yeah. You see that everywhere in the world now. It's not just the US.
0: Yeah. My FIDE and USCF ratings have been moving in opposite directions <laughs> because even if... Yeah. No, my, I mean, mine also.
2: I mean, my FIDE rating is, is moved, has been moved down. You, you, you're playing, if you're playing against somebody who is 100 or 200 points underrated, that means you're basically losing two or three rating points right there, irrespective of the outcome of the game, because it'll be, the effect will be two or three rating points yeah. on your results. So, that's basically what's going on. and I, I think that to people who are who are facing that that challenge, what I would say is especially the older people who <clears throat> you know remember their ratings being higher in the past and might be inclined to become desperate or give up, God forbid, if their ratings go go south or whatever. You know, you have to be realistic. You have to look at the situation, and it's rating is just a number. Like looking at looking at your strength and evaluating yourself by rating is it's not is not conducive to it's it's not a healthy thing to do. You have to look at a you know your whole performance, your overall tournament performances. How are you doing in the tournaments? Are you winning tournaments? You know, yeah, there's a lot of underrated players with low ratings, but the tournaments are stronger. Players are stronger. How are how are your games? comparing to the games you played 10, 10 or 20 years ago. You can do that with an engine. You can look at your games with a computer. You can compare your games now to what they were then. And I think you'll find, you and, and probably a lot of other people will find, that your games are probably as good now or better than they were then, even though your rating might be lower.
0: That's a really good point, yeah. And, yeah, a little pep talk for the, you know, the Levy Rosmans yeah. and the Ben Feingolds and the Magnus yeah, Carl, I mean everyone's retiring. Cool. <laughs>
2: Well, we could talk about Magnus Carlson. <laughs> no, yeah, I case. mean, I, separate case. But but of the you know this, this I, I I do I do want to say that for me you know I have been I'm far from retiring. In fact, I'm probably playing more now than I ever did before. Partially as a result of moving to Tennessee and working working online, where I don't have I kind of have a schedule where I can travel more. But um, but you know. It, <laughs> It's it's kind of like – the, the, there's a lot of other people in my generation, and you've probably talked to them. You've probably had them here on the podcast, most of them, like Patrick Wolf, Stuart Rachels, yep. Ben Feingold. Ben Feingold still plays. Um, well, he did say so he's he not,
0: rage quit after the world Open, so Yeah, he's not going
2: to quit. He's going to play. He, he still plays. I'm not putting him in that category. Uh, but Stuart Patrick, um, maybe Alex Scherzer. I don't know if, you've, if you know if I familiar, him. I remember him. I haven't yeah. interviewed him. Yeah, Ilya Gurevich, um You know, maybe maybe a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and and, and some of the seniors, like a, a little bit older, who are playing in the senior championship. You know, a lot of them are either playing only against other seniors or are not playing at all. And part, partly, it's because they had a higher peak, right? So, like Patrick Wolf, for example, I, I talked to him about this myself. Um, uh, many years ago, and I think he probably might might have told you the same thing. Uh, is he's already been U.S. champion? He's been U.S. champion twice. He was a very strong player. If he plays in tournaments, he's going to be his level performance will be much lower than it was then, and so he doesn't have the he he doesn't feel like he wants he doesn't feel the motivation and. I take an, I take a different viewpoint. Partially, it's because perhaps my peak was not as high. I never became U.S. champion. I came close a couple of times. I was within a couple of games, but I was not. I didn't have that kind of that kind of top result. My my peak FIDE rating was twenty five fifty, which is not that bad, but it's not as not as high as some of these guys. Um, but you know, you just have to set your goals differently if you like the game. You know, my goal is not necessarily to be at the same level where I was. Maybe I'll never be able to have the same rating or whatever. I mean, I hope to, but that's not really the goal. The goal is to play as well as I can, enjoy the game, and play well, play competitively, at even at an older age. Even if it means, you know, there might be a mix of some good results and some bad results. Like, for example, you know, I've had very good results in the last year where I was – you know, playing at GM norm type level, right, 2600 level, I've had some not so good results. But, you know, I think that for me the pride is, you know, I can come in, I'm 54 years old, I can still play as well or almost as well as I did in my youth, and I'm still active, and I'm still doing it. I'm doing it against young players, not just people my age, but younger players who are not only underrated but have more physical strength and energy. So it's a, it's a different challenge, you know, but you gotta you got to meet the challenges in life. So if you like the game, why not play? Just because you're a little bit, okay, you're not going to be able to, you know, you're not going to be able to conduct a whole tournament of nine rounds without a loss maybe. But, okay, you can still do the best you can, and you can still be a lot better than almost anybody else your age.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but, but I admire the athletes who were once stars, but who hang on and become yeah. role players like, like Vince Carter in basketball yeah. or Pujols in baseball. Like, you know, to me, that's an admirable trait that you just love the game. So you say, okay, you know, I had my, I had my time at the top, but I'm still here, you know, and, right, and to me, to me, that's admirable. Um, And we actually had a Patreon mailbag question um, along these lines from a friend and supporter of the podcast, Chris Wainscott. And you actually covered a lot of it about why you, you still play when some of your contemporaries, Chris also mentioned, uh, Fedorowitz and Dmitry Garovich. I know Dmitry is your. Well, Dmitry president. just
2: played very well just now in the U.S. I don't know if Yeah, you, saw you were that, just
0: he, there, right? Uh, in Illinois. I was not there. Oh, you weren't there. This isn't. No, no, no. He, oh, the no, US, he played US Illinois yeah. Championship, not the U.S. Senior but closed, Open. Sorry. But closed. Sorry. Yeah. Closed.
2: Yeah. He tied for first. Yeah. Yeah. With you... Five people. It was a five way tie. So is still good, but you just got to have the motivation. And he was motivated for this one. He prepared because I know him. We're friends. He, he was actually my coach for. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, he I did. Was,
0: yeah. Came up. He, the was, he was my
2: coach like 30, 20, 30 years ago or 35 years ago. So I've known him for almost 40 oh. years. So, yeah, we talked. I mean, I know him and he's he was motivated. He wanted to do well and he did. And same thing in the US Senior Open. Like, it's just a question. He's 66 years old, I think. It's a question almost. He's going to be 66 this year. He's a question of motivation. If you want to be, and he's playing very close to the level that he was when he was younger. I mean, I saw the games. Right. So, you know, you can do that. Um, you know, maybe there might be something to be said for people who are already have reached very high level before, like Patrick, like maybe Stuart, who kind of, you know, don't want to show other people that they're not that, that they're not at that level. But that's for me, there's this more pride to showing people that I can compete.
0: It's good. Yeah. And also the fact that you, Play so much, I think, helps. Like that's I think the yeah. hardest part would be when you first come back. Uh even yes. even for yes. players of that caliber. Um and and the other half of Chris's question, which you touched on, but maybe you could expound on it a little bit more, is how you um rework your goals um as you um compete in this new climate.
2: Um well.
0: Like do you have explicit I mean, goals
2: or not really? I don't know that I I can't say that I have explicit other than just to play well and do as well as possible in tournaments. You know, you definitely come to play every game. Um, You don't really think about ratings that much. You think more about tournament performances, first place, you know, whatever. Um, You know, you try to play in the best tournaments you can. Conditions for me personally, I find nowadays that it's important to have good conditions, meaning that, you know, no, I don't have to walk very far to the tournament. it's in the same place where I'm staying like I, I there's no noise there's the time control should be decent things like that um, well run tournament with bearings prepared um, but as far as as far as the goal, I think that I mean I, I always look at all the games that I play with a with an engine right after the game or and I analyze them. I just try to do the best I can in terms of the quality of play. I mean, and, you know, maybe if it, I don't, I don't really have a lot of students, but if I, but I have, I've had a couple of students over the years, but if I did, you know, that might be material for them. If you play an interesting game, you can show it to your students. Um, maybe you find some things about chess that you didn't know before, you know, maybe you find something new in the opening, some new opening ideas, like and I've come up with those myself in the last few years. Um you got to set your goals to be reasonable to be something you can accomplish. Don't you can't set your goals to be you know something that's going to that you're just going to not going to be able to do.
0: Yeah, that that's good advice and something I'm you constantly uh, encouraging <laughs> listeners uh to take it one goal at a time, you know. Uh, right. Uh, one right. rung up the ladder. Um at a time. And, and Alex, do you have any sort of more general advice about, uh, for, for older players still competing, whether it be about like managing energy, um, or, um, studying openings, whatever Um, it might be.
2: Sure. Sure. Um, I've thought about that a lot actually. And, and, um, well, everybody is different. Everybody is individually different. Everybody has different strengths and weaknesses, but, You know, I've actually thought about that question, you know, how do you improve it or how do you, I don't know if you can improve necessarily, but how do you stay at the same level at an older age? Like a lot of times you have to just kind of just keep up to, you have to run in place just to keep up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And the person who was, has always been my kind of role model in that, as you could probably guess. Do you want me to guess? Victor. Yeah. My
0: guess would be Shabalov.
2: <laughs> uh okay. a little bit a little bit higher up. Um
0: uh, Vichy. No, Victor Korch. Ah, of course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? I would have gotten it eventually. He was,
2: <laughs> yeah. Because he was actually he actually reached his peak at 47 or 48 years old. He he got to that level where he hadn't been forward. How did he do that? And I was always thinking, I was trying to, you know, when he died actually in 2016, because he was always one of my favorite players. I only had a chance to meet him once, but you know, I've always studied his games and his life and read all of his books many times. But um, when he died, I actually did a tremendous amount of work just on his games. And and what I do, and this might be difficult for some people below a certain level, but I think anybody like above 2,000, 2,100 can do this, um, is I go to chess base and I use this thing called training mode. Yeah, I don't know if it's you're like guess with the that. move, guess the move. Yeah. Right. Now, actually, Bruce Pandolfini has a has a column in Chess Life. Yeah, solitaire. Where he does something very, yeah, where he does something very similar. You know, in the old days, you would take a little book and you would kind of cover it with a with a paper, right? Cover the moves with the paper, play the move. But now you have chess space. You can do it with the computer. It closes the next move, right? So you just see the position, and you don't see the next move played, and then you you play the move. You have a you have a notebook. You have a Kind of like a sheet of paper where you write down your move and your opponent's response. Right. Your opponent is basically the opponent that, in this case, Korchino had in this game. Right. I'm looking at lots of Korchino games and I'm trying to guess his moves. And what that does is not only does it improve your level of play in terms of you're going to be finding, you're going to be forced to find moves. There's going to be a point, you'll see, once, you know, once you see a position, be a point where you know you have to find the right move. And you might be surprised that you went into this position because you maybe the previous move you didn't play the right move you didn't get because you were afraid of something and you got to this position. Now you got to find it, right? So this is going to be is going to teach you how to find the critical point in the game and how to play the right move at the right point in the game. But also, and this is more subtle, is it? And this might be only accessible to like the stronger players. So I apologize if this if that's going to be only for narrow audience there. But um, it teaches you about the style of the player. Because your moves, you know, I'm a strong player too. And I'm going to make some moves. And I'm going to, my choice might be different than Korchnoi's. And in some cases, it might be better or worse. Just because I didn't play the move he played doesn't mean it's always a bad move. These days, you can look with an engine, right? Most of the time, it's probably worse. But Mm. there might be some times when, right? So, and there's a lot, a lot of times, there are two equally good decisions. That happens a lot. Or two fairly similar decisions. One that goes into one type of position or the other. So you can... You can get a sense for how the player plays. So I did this with many of his games through many years of going back from like the 60s. He had a great tournament in 1968, Wake on Zay, when he won almost all the games. And then going through the 70s and late 70s, early 80s. And I detected what the changes were. So he changed his style considerably. And he did that several times as he was getting older he realized that some things were missing and he needed to backfill. So like in the 60s, he added endgame technique. In the 70s, he became – this was interesting. This was to me the most interesting part is from a player who was a technical player for the most part, strong endgame player but technical player, not really an attacking player, more of a counterattacking player, but somebody who was a classically kind of classically trained chess player. You see in the 1970s, late 70s and early 80s, you see basically a wild animal showing up. (laughs) You see see a person who is constantly trying to complicate the position, even when he has the advantage, which is not what you're supposed to do. When you have the advantage, you have a technical advantage, you're supposed to just, like Karpov used to just kind of wait for the position to come to you, right? Wait for the opponent to make mistakes. He would actually force the complications. He would enter the complications, including in time trouble, and I think he did that intentionally because he wanted to remain sharp when he's older. And I think that's what worked for him. It doesn't mean it'll work for everybody, but that's what worked for him. He became a sharper player. He started looking for, um, you know, more confrontation. It, it might also be that in his personal, you know, situation with leaving the Soviet Union and everything and having a confrontation in life, it kind of like, you know, spilled over to the chessboard. But that's what he did, and he became a better player as a result of that. And that, to me, was very was was quite um, motivating, you know, quite inspirational because you can kind of figure out what where you need to go and change your style. And I think he did that. Um, in the early eighties, he um, he played this match with Kasparov the Canada's match in 1983. And Kasparov had detected this because they'd also done a lot of work in preparing for him. And he noticed this because he wrote about this in his book. He he noticed what some of the changes that some of the fact that he was kind of like, not, not really a classical player in the end game. And so Kasparov said, you know what? I'm going to meet you head on in the end game, because if you're going to be like that, I'm going to beat you at your game. I'm going to beat you in the end game. And that's what he did in the match. And then as a result of that course, changed again to become, as he became a little bit older, he wrote about the fact that it became more difficult for him to play after he turned 55 years old. So he started actually toning things down a little bit. He, he was, he's especially against weaker players. He started using technique a lot more as opposed to complicating the position. So it kind of went in waves. It was very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, and, and when I look at my, at my own games, if I see I – I use that method a lot, the, this kind of the solitary chess method in Bruce Pettelfini, the you know, with the training mode, right? I can do this with any player. I've done many players' games just to learn about how they play and just to – I mean, the other day I asked – and what I do is I have, I'm lucky because I have Bitch, who is uh, my son. As you know, he's a master. He is able to select games because you don't want to just do any game because the game might be a bad game where you makes mistakes. Like you don't want to be you don't want be finding moves where, which are mistakes, right? You want to be going through only good games. So he selects a but he selects games for me where the player basically makes mostly good moves, or he tells me which move to start from and what move to end with, something like that. Uh, last week I did some Kramnik games. You know, I've I've done a lot of a lot of different players over time. Did, I've did done Nepo games.
0: Kramnik changed his style too. And yeah, yeah. Preceding. Yeah, I was doing
2: Kramnik of the late um or I think early two thousands. Um became more aggressive. But but um and I did some neat neapomb games, which were he is a wild animal yeah. also, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very sharp, like somebody who just wants to go to the sharpest possible line. He's confident that he can beat the opponent there. Sometimes you need to do that in yourself. Sometimes you find that your your play is becoming a little uh you know calcified, so to speak. Maybe you're not you're drawing too many games or you're, you know, not not attacking as much as you should. Pick a player who attacks a lot. It doesn't have to be somebody from the past, it could be somebody from the present. Find some attacking games. Try to find those moves, you know. That's what I do. It doesn't work for everybody, but that's that's a method that I use all the time. Yeah, at least it get at least it gets you one. One of the things about it is, if you play that game, you're always going to win the game because the guy wins the game. You're going to find right. the moves that win the game. <laughs> so you're always going to get that good feeling about ah, I found the, I found the combination. Right. Maybe I didn't find it in move one, all right, but I found it, you know, in move five. After the first five moves, I didn't find, but then in the net last two moves I did. You, you get some kind of satisfaction <clears throat> from that, from you know, from that. No matter what, even if you didn't. Like, a lot of times you kind of exercise. If you don't solve the exercise, you start feeling down on yourself, right? In this case, you're, you're going to be forced eventually to fight the right move.
0: Excellent. Well, excellent. So, I've got two follow-ups for you based on that story. Yeah. But uh, first, we need to take a quick break and uh, sure. and hear from our sponsors. <laughs> Listeners, as I record this, the chess world's attention is turned to the Chess Olympiad, one of my favorite tournaments of all just tons of strong players all under one roof representing their countries and if you are a chessable pro member we've got good news for you national master brian tillis is making a course based on the games of the olympiad i could tell you from past experience there's tons and tons of tactics flowing from these games you just have so many players playing each other varying levels that there's always lots to learn and brian is an excellent teacher so if you're not a pro member, you might want to take this opportunity to sign up to receive that and other perks. And if you are, be sure to grab it as well as the other new courses that Chessable's dropping all the time, including a new one on the Triangle Slav from Christoph Selecki and Erwin Lemie. Um, new courses from Judith Polgar and the list goes on. So be sure to go to Chessable.com and check out what is available both for free and for purchase.
1: 18 plus.
0: and Alex as promised that this this is fascinating stuff. So my my first question relating to the story you just told going back to to Korchnoy um to studying yeah. the games of Korchnoi and having met Korchnoi um is is there a story behind meeting Korchnoi you hear so many. <laughs> um the,
2: unfortunately there isn't. I've met I, I so I did meet Korchnoi but only once and it was I'll tell you when it was. It was um so my, my coach, Dmitri Gurevich, was was actually his trainer for, for a while. So Dmitri was training him for about five or six years, I think. And um, he was training him during the 1988 Canada's matches in St. John, Canada. Um, there was a bunch of, there was like eight players. It was the old FIDE cycle. And I was playing in an open tournament there. Uh, there was an open, big open tournament. I think Joel Benjamin won. There were actually two open tournaments. I think Benjamin won one of them, and I think, I forget who won the other, but uh, strong tournaments. Um, there's also a World Blitz Championship held there in 1988. And so I met Kort Shnoy. He invited me, Dimitri invited me to one of their sessions in preparing for their next match game. He was playing against Johan Hjardarsson,
0: mm-hmm.
2: the match uh, Icelandic grandmaster. Yeah, I
0: interviewed him. He's,
2: uh, um, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. A legend yeah he lost that match of course i did um but i he was um thinking about playing he was really preparing for the next game in which he was going to have black he was going to play i think the caro Khan but uh he also always as you know he always played the open rui lopez and i also it was a big i i, I kind of as a result of course i learned to play it and i was that was a Big, big favorite. I don't play it as much anymore. I sometimes still play it, but at that time, I played nothing but that, and I was a big expert in that opening. In the United States, probably the biggest. I don't think anybody else at that time played it in the, in America. Um, so, you know, Dmitry thought it might not be a bad idea for me to kind of sit in one of their sessions and maybe show, of course, some of the games that 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 I had played in the open. Some I, I played a game against Alonso Zapata. I played a game, a couple of games against uh, Yehuda Grunfeld, both GMs you know, at the time, um, strong GMs um, at that time. And, of course, I played both of them as well. And, um, you know, we kind of went over that. And, I mean, I, I don't remember a lot, except one thing I remember is we were, we were going over those openings, and then Dimitri at one point said, well, I mean, you're not really going to play the Open Rui tomorrow because, you know, where should we really be looking at it? I mean, you're not going to play it tomorrow. You're probably going to play the Khan And then, of course, she says, well, no, no. We're looking at the open room because I played all my life. <laughs> you know <laughs> that's crazy. I played all my life. And so you may not play it tomorrow.
0: Now, Alex, I know you're a grandmaster, very strong player in in your own right, but were you intimidated showing your games to courts? Probably.
2: I was not a grandmaster yet. I was still an I I was actually you know, I wasn't even an IM. I'd had I'd had like two or three IM norms at the time. Um I wasn't even an IM yet. So of course, of course I was yeah. a little bit um, I mean, and, I would you know, be scared I, yeah.
0: to show my game to any Super GM. Obviously, I'm weaker, yeah. and that's part of it. But Kortchnori in particular, of course. like it's just... Well, it was
2: great just to just to sit in on the session. I mean, I was mostly just – mostly it was I was just quiet and kind of looking at their analysis. I was asked to – when I was asked to show something, I did, but I was mostly just sitting there and listening. I mean, he's quite a personality, of course. Right. It's incredible, you
0: know. And, and Alex, the second follow-up was if you have made adjustments to your own game uh, as
2: you continue mm-hmm. to
0: compete into your 50s.
2: Well, I've done that several times. I've do, I have constantly do that. I mean, I find that there's – I mean, this goes back to, you know, I was a student of, of Mark Varetsky, as you probably know. Um, he – you know, I, I was – I studied with him for a while. And the, the method goes back to that. Like, you, you find your weaknesses, you – Try to <clears throat> eliminate your weaknesses, but not lose your strengths. Right, that's the goal, but it doesn't always work that way. But you know, you can go over your games. You can see what you've what you've uh, failed at and make sort of make patterns. So yeah, I mean, I think there's there were like recently there were times when I had had suffered from like poor endgame technique for several times, and I kind of try to you know catch up on that. Uh there's I think I have tried to be to make my style like falling caution. I think I have tried to make myself a little more aggressive in the last few years. I started out like when I was very young, I think I was a purely positional player. But then over time I've become a little bit more, you know, and then openings I always try to I always try to come up with new openings. You have to grow. You have to play systems you haven't played for many reasons. One, you have to be unpredictable to your opponent. Two is it just teaches you more more about the horizon of things you can see in the game. So, you know, whereas before I just played, you know, mostly E4, I now play D4, C4. I play different things with white. I can play different openings.
0: But they were still able to catch you in Norway.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah,
0: that's true. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah. It happens. And hearing you discuss playing yeah. in your youth, Alex, I do want to to dig into your chess origins a bit. I mean, I know mm-hmm. you emigrated from St. Petersburg, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you played chess already when you came to the United States? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. So I studied chess in Leningrad. It was called Leningrad at the time. Uh, I was born in 1968. In 1975, I started attending what is called the Pioneer Palace. You've probably heard of that, right? I'm sure you've had other guests who went there. Um, And I was studying under uh, Vladimir Zak, who you probably – I've also heard. Yes. Right. Legend. He was a very famous, he was Scorchinoise Spassky's uh, coach when they were little. Um, he was also coach of Yer kamsky Kamski for a while, uh, and a couple of other top GMs. And, you know, I have nothing but great things to say about him. I think he was, you know, there was, there was a, there was an article, there's an essay about him in, in Sasanko's book, um, you know, what was that book called? Russian Silhouettes, I think, mm-hmm. right? You probably read that book. Yeah, there was an essay. there was an essay about Zach. It was called The Great Teacher Inspires. And that's, it's just, I don't think I could say it any better. You know, he wasn't a great player. He didn't know, you know, he didn't know end games. He didn't like teach end games very well, for example. He didn't, you know, he, he was not like a great attacking genius or expert. But you could just see that he loves the game. And for him, just... You, that the passion that he exhibited for the game, which is so obvious to the students, and you're you're left with that for life. So that's what that's what he left me with, just the passion for the game. I think part of the reason why I'm am still playing as much is because of that upbringing, right? I think you know, even though you know, as people became older and you know, stronger, like master level, they he was. Not enough for them anymore they needed to get a new coach but i left when i was 11 years old so at the time that i left he was still my coach and my rating at the time was about 1800 so i came here in 1979 my rating my first rating here was about 1800 um and but i had a lot of the you know a lot of the soviet chess school in me already you know i knew a lot of things you know we had it was funny we had um adjournments, games were adjourned every time. We, we Our tournament games, after 40 moves, are always adjourned. So adjournment analysis was something I already knew a lot about, and that helped during the 1980s when there were a lot of adjournments. Um, and, you know, here in the U.S., um, I progressed pretty quickly. Uh, a couple of years, I was a master. At 14, I was a master, which at that time was pretty good. Now it's like if you're not a grandmaster by 14, you're a nobody.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to tell listeners uh, <laughs> even even 1800 yeah. at 11, that was that was pretty good at the time. Yeah, exactly,
2: right. Yeah, so now it's like okay or whatever. Right. Next, uh, <laughs> and then I actually kind of like stagnated for I don't know, stagnated is the right word, but kind of stayed stayed in place for a while uh, for a couple of years. But then I met Dmitri. Uh, he started coaching me in 1984. At that point, I was twenty three hundred, and I think with him, it really. I, within a couple of within a year, I think I was already twenty five hundred. So, and then from there, it became tough. The, the the you know the, getting from the IM level to the GM level that involved a lot, a lot more serious work with um, dedication to the game. I had the Sanford Fellowship, so I had the opportunity to do that for a couple of years, take time off college and stuff, and I was lucky that I got tournament playing opportunities. And I got to train with Ferecki, uh as well as some of the, some other top trainers like Gregory Kaidanov. Amazing. For
0: example. Yeah. Um, well,
2: and I was, it was also, it was also lucky that, you know, the, the travels that I had, I got to meet a lot of, um, you know, a lot of top players at the time. And it was, it was a little bit fortunate knowing the Russian language too, because for example, you know, I, I could, I could speak to a lot of Russians in their language much better than other Americans could, and I could learn from them.
0: But but no no real Russian accent, Alex. How'd you pull that off? <laughs> um, I don't
2: know. I mean, I was, I, was, I was came here very young. I was eleven years old.
0: And I want to and, hear more about like your experience with Dvoraksky in a second. But I, I'm also mm-hmm. just from a human perspective. Uh, I'd like to hear a little more about your family's decision to come to the U.S. and how how you processed it as like an 11 year old boy.
2: Um. Well. So, <laughs> we were as an eleven-year-old boy in the Soviet Union. Well, let's say as a ten-year, eleven-year-old, I was already no knew where we were going. As a ten-year-old boy, when I first found out that we were coming, um, we were taught in school that America is a land of evil, right? Right, yeah. and that any other country, anything outside of communism, is is a bad thing. So it was a shock initially. In fact. First, I found out that my dad's sisters had emigrated to the United States. I think, it was funny. My parents kept asking me, like, "Do you know where? Do you know where Aunt, you know, Aunt Rachel was one of them? Do you know where Aunt Rachel is?" And I was like, "No, ah. she's in Odessa, right? Sure that's where they live." Uh, no, she's not. I said, "Really? Hmm, okay." Did you know where she's? I said, "No." And then, and at one point, like they felt I was ready to hear, that I said, "You know, they're actually in America." I, said, I was like, I, I was. I didn't even say a word. Like it was totally shocking, right? So it took me a while to like get, you know, get used to the fact that <clears throat> it's not like it is like they teach in the schools. You know, by the time we we emigrated, I was all in on that. I was no longer. Uh, I I already knew that. The Soviet Union was bad, and America was good. It was kind of simple, simple in my mind at that point. <laughs> but you it's know. still got to be
0: scary. I mean, you you don't speak English at the time, you know. You... Well, I did. I did
2: speak a little English oh, okay. because I uh, I studied. Yeah, and that's maybe that's part of why my accent is not as 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 heavy as some of the other people who came at my age. Um, I did learn English in, a, in school there from second grade, and my teacher, my English teacher, was very good. She was she was uh, like she taught she taught us the right way to pronounce things like where to put the tongue and things like that, which, which was very, very uh, important.
0: Okay. And I saw that you were Wyoming state champion. Is that where you grew up
2: Alex or? Um, I lived in Wyoming and in Colorado for various, uh, for, for most of that time. And so I did, I did live in Wyoming for a few years and in Colorado, I went to college in Colorado.
0: And how did your family end up in those places?
2: Uh, So my, that aunt, aforementioned aunt, she, she um, moved to Denver. She lived there. She was in the real estate business. She she didn't really have a, you know. She made her business here. Not she she was a you know, business person. She doesn't really matter where she was. She's so she just chose a place where she thought the climate was the best. Um, we came to Denver initially just as kind of, you know, you have relatives here. Um, and then my mom found a job in the oil industry in in Casper, Casper, Wyoming,
0: okay. in
2: oil company. So she lived there for about twenty years.
0: Okay.
2: Um, now she lives in Florida, and uh, my parents are both both uh, alive and doing well. Great.
0: Um, and Wyoming not a chess hotbed, not then, no, <laughs> not now. No. Uh, now at no, least not... you have the internet. So, uh, yeah, how did yeah. you manage that as a kid?
2: Uh, I played a lot of tournaments in Denver, okay. in Colorado, which was also not a chess hotbed, but it was at least something. Right. And given that I was only an expert, I had I got you know I had plenty of challenges there. Okay. Uh, in Wyoming, there was nobody I mean I had some friends, but there were nobody nobody really challenged me there but you know I didn't really you know it didn't um I didn't really improve to like a really strong level until I started traveling outside New York, you know east Coast, even abroad to play tournaments, yeah,
0: that makes sense, okay. and what did you learn from devretsky Alex?
2: <laughs> well, so yeah, so he was um Yeah, I mean, he was basically. So there's a couple of things like learning, learning how to self-improve, right? To improve your own game, learning from, you know, make patterns of mistakes that you make, and then figuring out how um, to prevent those mistakes. You know, learning, looking at examples from other players and how they prevent those mistakes. Just as an example, for instance, you know, he might say that, you know, one of my problems is that he, he he had a kind of a relatively simple way of looking at things, maybe a little too simplistic. He thought of chess players into two categories, intuitive and analytical. He thought that intuitive players have certain strengths and certain weaknesses, right? Analytical players have completely other strengths and weaknesses. He kind of put them into two buckets, right? Tal is an intuitive player. Karpov is an intuitive player. So Karpov and Tal are actually very similar, believe it or not. And people like Kasparov, Alakine, Batvinik are analytical players. So the intuitive players' weaknesses are they don't calculate variations very well. They can see through them. They can see variations very quickly, but they don't calculate. They can't calculate long variations precisely. Karpov can't, and Tal wasn't very good at it either, believe it or not. He, he was just good at, like, thinking very quickly, yeah. right? not precise. Yeah. Uh, whereas Kasparov doesn't have the intuition. He can calculate much better, but he doesn't have as good an intuitive sense of where the piece should be. He doesn't feel the the critical point of the game as much. So that's kind of what he, the, the perspective that Dvoretsky came with. He thought that I was a more intuitive player, and he taught me, he, he was trying to teach me to kind of, augment that intuition with ability to calculate ability to think more more in a more disciplined way. Uh, he also felt that you know at a certain point like if you have a if you have an advantage uh winning advantage to actually win the game you have to play some 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 ta- you have to find some tactic at the end because if an opponent's defense you're not going to break through until you see some tactical continuation. And you thought that I was not very good at that. So you gave me some exercises to kind of cure that problem, you know, like to find the right time to kind of grab your opponent by the throat, find a tactic, just calculate one thing and you're done. So, you know, things like that. I mean, obviously a lot of end game, you know, I was already good in the end game. So that was actually a strength already. Uh, But I think, you know, calculation of variations helped because I was, I was probably as a more intuitive player, I was, probably less, um, less eager to kind of, you know, to think very, very concretely. Um, and yeah, maybe I was thinking a little bit too generally. Um, so psychology, um, which, you know, he talked about that a lot different. I, I can go to more detail on that. Sure. Um, yeah. but you know, but there's, there's, and I think that, Frankly, it wasn't just Varetsky. It was you know, communicating and you know when you when you when you just spend time with somebody <clears throat> really good, somebody you know really talented, you learn a lot yourself. And I had I had the you know I was lucky enough to meet you know to, and to even study a little bit or just go over some games with Michael Tal, for example. Wow, you know he was quite a personality.
0: What um, any stories? A come little to bit mind? with
2: Vishy and not um <laughs> yeah yeah well so so one story so the first time I met him was um in uh 1988 in the fall of 1988 there was a tournament in California the American Open and uh <laughs> there was a yeah so first first who was friends with him he introduced me to him and um he so Dimitri's are so so Dimitri and I had played earlier that year in a in a game at the US Open, which which was published in The Informant. It was it was a nice game, which Dimitri won. He beat me. It was like a, a top top board game, deciding game of the tournament. Uh we were friends, we were good friends. We were staying in the same hotel room, but we were tied for first, we had to play each other. Mm-hmm. Uh and he beat me. So He published the game in The Informant, and then he introduced me to Tal later and said, you know, this is Alex Fishbein. He's my student. We actually played a game. And then Tal, okay, so he had not, he did not know that he was supposed to, that I was going to come and meet him. He had no, just like, it was random, right? Tal immediately remembered what that game was. Hmm. So he had seen the game. Not only did he remember what the game was, he said something about that game. Yeah. So that game, it shows that the knight in C6 is as important as the knight in D6. And the game was uh, was an English opening hedgehog-type variation where the tr- bishops were traded, the light-squared bishops were traded, and the white knight came to c6 uh, from d4. And that's like a big weakness because black plays b6 and d6 in the hedgehog, right? And the c6 square becomes weak. The knight came into c6, his knight. I was up a pawn, but I lost the game because his knight was in c6. So Tal, like out of nowhere, just remember the detail about that game. A game that he had had nothing to do with, so that was pretty amazing. I thought. <laughs> yeah, it's like what? And and like ever since I say, yeah, the knight in c six is as important as and as good as strong as the knight d six. And Stahl said that.
0: So he you to know. be clear for listeners, he means a white knight, like a white outposted white, yeah. knight, yeah, the white knight. Yeah, that.
2: Uh, it was just amazing that he let's remember. And then later in that tournament, it was another kind of funny story, which is which is I think is um, well not as much funny as as I think instructive is because people don't think of Tal as a good endgame player, but I had an adjourned game. So in that tournament, I don't know if people realize now, computers used to play tournaments, okay, as competitors. So like Deep Thought, for example, that was one of the first computers, played in this tournament, okay? And you could, if you, as a player, you could... Opt out. You could say, I don't want to play a computer, like the no computer list. I don't know if you remember this or now not. Now that you mention it, but, yeah, I didn't. Right. There did. was like yeah. a no, no, no computer list, which you sign up to. But I, I didn't sign up for that. I mean, well, whatever. I'll play computers. Right. Um, in 1987, I played a computer in that same term with high tech, which was a precursor to deep thought. Yeah, I'm playing their high tech since there's a big, big computer. It wasn't like a laptop or anything. There were no laptops. It was a big computer, probably occupying like, Easily like a couple of tables. And Hans Berliner himself, okay, was standing there operating the computer. Okay, it was pretty funny. That game was drawn. Then the next year, I don't think it was Hans Berliner anymore. Hans Berliner being the father of high tech, right? I think the Deep Thought was different, was was IBM's computer, I think, right? So um, Deep Thought played in the – so that was a precursor to Deep Blue. It played in the American Open. It won the tournament. It tied for first with Tony Miles. And it beat Ben Larson in that tournament. I'm uh yeah, beat Ben Larson, but lost to Brown. But it scored, it scored six and a half out of eight with Miles, and they tied for first. One of the games it won was against me. And <laughs> that game was adjourned. Okay. So I had a I had a adjourned game against the computer. And <laughs> it was a rook and bishop versus rook ending. Okay. I had the rook. And I sealed the move, and my sealed move was a mistake. So if I sealed the right move, then it's a draw. But I sealed the bad move, and now I'm losing, okay? So And against the computer? Yeah, even then. (laughs) So so I showed the position to Tal, and Tal, like, immediately, we we didn't have – there were no table bases or anything, right? There were no – we didn't have books showing how these positions are won. At the time, we didn't have them in that room. But he just looks at the board, and he says – This is Tal, who is supposed to be not the best endgame player in the world. He says, no, that was a mistake. Now you're losing. He showed me three methods of drawing. Hmm. He knew them cold. He knew them absolutely cold. Like you wake him up at night, and he knew them. Three different methods. There's the method with the rook, where you don't let the king go to the fifth rank. There's the sixth rank defense, and there's the seventh rank defense. He knew all three of them, and he showed me all three of those methods. You should have done this. This is a dead draw. You should have done this. This is a dead draw. When you're just losing and you know, the computer is going to show you how hmm. <laughs> I was just amazed. Like, wow. really? You, you know, this, like <laughs> it's. F- I thought you were just a combinational player.
0: Right. Well, it's funny too, because in, I, I feel like maybe this has gotten exaggerated possibly uh, yeah. in, as the years go on. But of course he has this bohemian reputation. Yeah. Romanizer, yeah um in addition to obviously yeah insane chess yeah a little out- bit did you a little bit yeah did you have any um, outings with him john watson who wrote your forward <laughs> told a fun story of drinking with him on on this podcast i was
2: not drinking age yet and i've never really been a drinker although i do have stories about people being drunk during play games with me right but other people not tall but no i didn't really hang out with him that much um I once once I asked him to go over a game that I would played against Anthony Sadie, and he did. Spent like two hours. Also, this was toward the end of his career, right? He was, although that's not to say that he was not as earthly a earthly a person than <laughs> he was before. But uh, yeah, no, I can't I can't tell you that. I mean, I, I tried to spend more time with him, but he just, you know, he didn't. I remember I called him. He was he was in the in New York during the 1990 World Championship match. I, I probably saw him at the, at the ceremony or whatever. And then I called him and said, you know, would you like to give me a lesson? I'd like to spend some time And He's like, yeah, I, I can't do it right now, but there'll be next time. I'm sure. But, huh. you know, there wasn't next time, but, you know, but, um, you know, he was, he was still a great, a great personality. Um,
0: well, just an amazing person. Yeah, amazing. And thank You're you around. for those great stories. And we've got more stories yeah. to hear from Alex, but we need to take one more break. Uh, and then I want to hear, Alex, about the Kasparov simul. Uh, uh, the Kasparov <laughs> simul. So we'll be right back, listeners. Our friends at aimchest.com continue to roll out new features all the time. Some of the latest include a training room where you can work on tactics, advantage capitalization, blunder prevention, tons of stuff. They've got their own analysis board. And of course, they still have my favorite feature, which enables you to do large-scale review of your games and look for patterns that recur, review the mistakes that you've made in your games, set goals, and the list goes on. Uh, Aim Chess is well worth checking out, and if you decide to subscribe, please use the code PERPETUAL30 or use the link in the show description to save 30% on aimchess.com. And we are back. And we have another question from a Patreon supporter of the podcast. And uh, as Alex referred to, I interviewed his contemporary Grandmaster Patrick Wolf a couple years back. And we discussed this documentary uh, that chronicles a match of six young talented Americans playing against Kasparov. And Alex was one of them and uh, drew that game. You can still find it. Find the documentary on YouTube. It's quite an interesting little Uh, slice of uh, chess history. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But anyway, Sheldon Fernandez's question is, what was it like playing Kasparov as part of the American junior team Simo in 1988,
2: Alex? Um, Well, you know, you have to realize I was not yet, as I said, this was during the time when it actually was just a few days after I met Korchnoi. So all these encounters with these people, right? Very intimidating, right? I mean, I was not yet an IM. Um... And yeah, it was it was like sitting in front of him, just, just you get scared. And we, we were in the opening. I was sitting next to Danny Edelman, a friend of, I mean, we're all friends, obviously, but Danny Edelman. And we both had the same position. It was a Sveshnikov variation. He played this move, Queen A5 check against 95, where you repeat the moves. And so black actually invites white to make a draw. White can make a draw. And I was like, really, you're giving me a draw? And then I started thinking about it. I said, okay, well... I don't think I want to make a draw. I mean, I came here to play this guy. doesn't look like, doesn't look like I want to make a draw. I mean, I don't know. I'm white. Um, I was just waiting because I didn't know the line. I didn't know how I was supposed to play there. I didn't know the theory at all. And Danny next to me is a known as a theoretician. So I was waiting for him. Okay, you play first. I'll play when you play because <laughs> you're probably going to figure it out. And he's sitting there waiting also. Like, he's, what do I do? Like, I can make a draw. So he decides to make a draw um Gary gets really upset which I, which is not which is not right it was not right of him to do that um he's like yo you should make a draw because you're and you can see that on the tape yeah. um you know because you're your only chance to play as world champion and so on so okay well after that at least I can't expect. I mean I was <laughs> actually no to be honest I had already gone my way I, I was I was like okay there's only so long I can wait so I played my move it was a bad move and I got a very bad position very quickly by the time that he accepted, draw it, it was already worse. Um, but you know, I managed to kind of stick it out. I gave him some problems during the game, and then I was worse most of the game. And then towards the end, I managed to just swindle him a little bit into a into a drawn ending. Uh, I was he had like three points for the piece, completely winning position. I looked at it after; it's like minus six or something. Huh. And I managed to kind of like trade. I traded my bishop for two pawns. So now I'm down a pawn. <clears throat> but it's a drawn, rook, and pawn ending. I was kind of surprised that he like he missed that because it seemed pretty obvious to me. But he was very upset. Like, okay, he had already won the match. He had won the match. The score was four, was three and a half, one and a half. So this was the last game. So even if he loses the game, he wins the match. But throwing, he's, he's, he wins the match four to Patrick Wolf beat him. A very nice game although he was also had to come back from a worse position there. Uh, And then Edelman drew, and so I was the only other draw. Uh, He was not happy. He was not happy. I think he, in his mind, I think he, I don't know if this is fair to say, but I, I kind of like my approach, my level of my style of play was at the time was very similar to Karpov. I always played Bishop E2 against every Sicilian. Uh, I preferred end games and I think he, having played all these matches with Karpov, had just finished a match with Karpov in Seville. I think he had some negative emotions facing somebody with that style again. Hmm. So he was he was not he was not taking like during the next game he mentioned, you know, Alex Fishbein, he's a he's a good defending player, he's defends well in positions, he doesn't doesn't really know how to attack, uh play Bishop b two against every Sicilian <laughs> and so on, you know. <laughs> that's that's what he said after that. You know what those those comments um led me to change things. Like I don't want World Champion Tal also said about me that he's he's not he's not imaginative enough right? Like, people saying that led me to change my style a little bit. Said, so, you know, with these world champions are saying that maybe I should start playing more aggressive openings. Maybe I should start playing more attacking chess and that helped. Hmm. You know. And
0: have you encountered Kasparov again ever in the subsequent years like um like first
2: think so I don't
0: think so no I don't think I have Yeah <laughs> great story though yeah. Um and Alex I want to hear a little bit about your career because as is I think yeah. especially common amongst your generation um you, you went to university and uh, you know yeah. you've been playing all along but you've had quite a successful career in, in finance so um how, right. like how could you walk us briefly through how that unfolded sure.
2: So actually it's not unusual of people of my generation and my, and my playing strength here in America, because you look at Patrick Wolf, he did pretty much the same thing. Stuart Rachels became a philosopher. Um, I think Vivek Rao and Ilya Gurvich also both went into some kind of finance or some physics or something like that. The problem was unlike now in the early nineties, you couldn't make a living at chess. And we, you know, we used to be, we're all, we all went to college and, um, at that time, I think, you know, a big difference between the previous generation, people like Fed and, you know, Joel went to college, but people like, like Fed and maybe Larry Christensen, I don't think he went to college. Um, people of that generation, that was a Fisher boom. So everybody thought if Bobby Fisher, who didn't even finish high school, can do this, then, I mean, I can do it too. I mean, everybody thought that way, and some of them succeeded. Some of them became very strong. Some of them didn't, you know, but that's what people thought and that's fine. But now in the eighties, that wasn't, people already realized that that was a mistake because these people, even those that became strong grandmasters like Larry Christensen or like, you know, even Walter Brown, they had to kind of scrape out a living. Right. And so people's, you know, my parents basically told me, you're not going to be, you got to go to college. Like I know you're a good player and everything, but. You gotta have a you gotta have a degree, and then you can figure out what to do. Get a degree, and then you can decide what to do, right? So I got a degree, as did all of my my peers, and I decided what to do. And I had a couple of years to make that decision. I was lucky because um, because I have I had that San chess fellowship, so I had a couple of years where they were paying my way, and I became a grandmaster, which is good. Um, but I also got married, <laughs> and that kind of made it more urgent, I think, to find to, to find real work because you weren't going to make a decent living at chess to support a family or even not to support a family, just to be on your own. It wasn't that easy. And, you know, I was i had always enjoyed life. I did, I wasn't somebody who was going to, like, scrape out, you know, or, you know, for me, lifestyle was important, too. So it was an easy decision. You know, I was I was a good player. I was rated, you know, over 2,500 feet. I could have gone on there's no question if I had stayed in chess and if I had the resources to do that, I would have gone on probably to be at least 2,600 feet. But, but, you know, I, I went, went to work. Um, I had a degree in double degree in computer science. um, Well, in math and computer science. And I went to, um, I went to work on wall street in a, in a company called Keter Peabody, which is a, a financial company. And I, and basically, it's. I've been doing that kind of work ever since. It was a uh, kind of studying, analyzing uh, financial instruments. You know, there were mortgage-backed securities. I was working in that field, and I still do. I still work in that field for the last you know 30 years. Uh, but one thing I, I would say about that, and Patrick also went on to form a for my hedge fund late, later. Um, you know, in, in the in my work, I've done various things from trading to research to uh client advice and to computer programming also um all of those things and but chess was always like at work i'm still primarily known as a chess player
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it has always helped me because you know unlike some of the others unlike some of my peers at work for example i don't have an ivy league degree i don't have a phd or a master's um I've never studied economics. I don't have a degree in economics or finance, and but I think chess makes up for for some of those, you know, some some so, some of that because uh, people think that if you're a chess player, you're smart, and people think you're a chess player, you're a competitor, and I think that actually made it made a difference. One one time, it made a tangible difference. I I was this was about fifteen years ago to. 2004. So almost 20 years ago, uh, I played in the U S championship. I didn't win the tournament, but I won this thing called the bed Larsen prize for the fighting chess. And they had like a prize awarded for, to somebody who plays, doesn't draw games, just plays to the end, every game. And that tournament, I scored five and a half out of nine, which was a decent score, but I only had one draw. Um, and I won that prize, which is a pretty good prize. <laughs> Like five thousand dollars or something. And and when I came back, the my my co-workers thought that because I won that Ben Larson prize, that means I'm a more aggressive player hmm. than everybody else. So I'd be more aggressive. And they gave me a kind of a promotion at work as a result of that. They huh. they gave me a training job where I was being where I was asked to take on more risk as opposed to being more of an analyst. That's funny. Um, and that's something I want to do. And that's something I went on to do for the next you know, 15 years. So worth more than $5,000. So, <laughs> well, I, 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 and I wouldn't necessarily say that that job became, it was a promotion. I wouldn't necessarily say that, that job earned me more money, but it was probably, maybe it did, but that's not the most important thing. The important thing is it was something was more interesting to do. and it's something I wanted to do. Gotcha.
0: And and you do feel Alex, like chess helped you get your foot in the door initially as well. Oh,
2: well, initially, absolutely. In fact, without chess, I would never have gotten that job to begin with because, um, Peter Peabody. So actually, um, the head of research in that, in that company was, was this guy named John Ginokopoulos. I don't You probably don't know the name, Mm-mm. but he was a chess player. He was, a like an expert, high expert, maybe even low master. He was around 2200 level chess player. He was participating in the U.S. Junior one year. He was probably, uh, he was relatively young. He was a professor at Yale, but he was relatively, he was in his early 30s, I think at the time, maybe mid-30s. He was actually the the head of that department, the research department. And um. Yeah, so that's how I got the job because my resume came across and they they knew they saw my name and they kind of knew who I was. Gotcha. And
0: <laughs> you know, and obviously, so what advice would you give to? Obviously, the landscape has changed, but still, nonetheless, yeah. if you're not an elite player, you're not going to be a an actual someone who plays chess professionally. You can work in chess, um, you can be a streamer, a YouTuber, something like that. Maybe work for a chess company, but you're not necessarily going to be. Um, just playing. So, a young grandmaster like I interviewed Michael Brown, who was going to university. Uh, right. Um, Andrew Tang, who's down the road from me at Princeton. Like, w- what advice would you give? He's still going to school. What's that? He's
2: entertaining. Still going to school.
0: Right. right? Yeah, I think he's going to be a senior uh-huh. at Princeton. Um. Okay. And he's he's doing an internship in finance. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but um, but what advice would you give to young? very accomplished chess players who probably are not like might peak at top 100 in the world if they devoted their lives to, to chess.
2: Um, That's a tough one because now it's different. It's very different now. And I think that given the same choice that I had now versus then I might've chosen chess now because you do have an, you do have an opportunity to make a living. And a pretty decent living. It might not be what you want to do. Teaching is not necessarily what people want to do. But it is something that you can do. And chess is very valued in society now. It was then too. But I think it's an individual thing. I think it depends on your passion for the game. I think it depends on your um, your goals. Like, Are you going to be happy just being top 100? Or do you need to be top 10? Mm-hmm. If you don't get to be top 10, you think your life is a wasted life. If you think that, then no, don't do it. Go to finance or go anywhere else, right? I don't know if finance is the place to be anymore. It could be other things. It could be whatever it is, right? It could be, um, you know, technology, environment, you know, but medicine maybe, but, but um, you know, finance is not for everybody either also. but But I think that now it's, now I think chess players have to think about it. It is a legitimate. It, it, I think it is a legitimate profession now, and I'm happy to. I'm happy to to say that, you know, even though I'm not really necessarily taking advantage of that right now, I'm happy that it's gotten to that point, you know. And I think that grandmasters they've gotten to a very high level. If you're talking about people, you know, people at grandmaster level. I don't know. Feel like feel like I would give it a shot. All right, you know? I like
0: it. I would give it a shot. Yeah, that, yeah, that's good. That's now more so than before. Yeah, and and similar to the advice your parents gave you. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially yeah. if you're like the people I named, were basically grandmasters at eighteen. So, going to college, right. like you can do that, and then and then do chess. You know, like it's sort of a compromise. Of yeah. A, yeah. Although the value, perhaps, of a university degree is not quite it's as not high as it once was. course As it once was. Um, last okay. major topic for you, Alex, I think is is your books. Um, I've been okay. speed reading your your The Exchange French Comes to Life, and and it's yes. really got a unique style. I really. Um, Enjoyed it, um, but first, well, thank you. Yeah, no, it was, it was a pleasure to read. Um, obviously, I I did the thing where I didn't have the chess set out, so I just looked at the diagrams and played through the moves in my head. But I, but I greatly enjoyed the book.
2: Well, you know, you shouldn't have to use a chess set these days. No, um, yeah, yeah, this is that's true. That's why there's put sort of diagrams. Yeah.
0: But okay, so my first question. And and I know you've written about the the Scotch Gambit as well but first of all right. what do people misunderstand about the the French exchange and then I'd like to talk more about the structure of the book which I found interesting.
2: Sure. So <clears throat> well first of all the French exchange is you know I would I would say it's not just an opening it's it's well you could say it's a lifestyle, but hmm. no, but but it's it's really like okay, you, you trade pawns and move three, but then more things happen, right? There are more pawns that get traded, and usually, what happens is somebody gets an isolated pawn. A lot of times, White gets an isolated pawn. So the position you get is not going to be a drawish position with the symmetrical position. It's going to be an isolated pawn position, which is similar to what you might get in a, you know, in in a in a queens gambit accepted in fact it it actually transposes to queens gambit accepted in in several lines as you probably saw um so that's one thing it's not it's not most of the positions you get are not actually symmetrical positions there's some diff, there's there's some kind of dynamic going on yeah. right those positions that are symmetrical okay with few exceptions black is going to be in trouble because that symmetry, White's going to have not just an extra tempo, but the ability to put the bishop on a better square. And I, I've won many of those positions against stronger or weaker players, just you know, just by having the extra tempo. I mean, it's sort of like the Petrov Defense. It's very similar in the structure. A lot of positions you get are similar to what you get in the Petrov Defense. Well, Black doesn't always play the Petrov Defense and thinks that they can just make a draw, right? The Petrov Defense is, is an opening where a lot of things can happen. So. Um, you know, I mean I, I devote a whole chapter to that thing called I call the IQP light, mm-hmm. where you kind of have an isolated pawn. But the difference is that the opponent's pawn is not on the E file, but on the C file. It makes a difference because your end game prospects are better. Um, you have a C file square C five, five square for the Knight Outpost. Uh the attacking prospects for the bishop on C – it it's open, the F7 square is right immediately under attack, whereas the E6 pawn is not there. So there's a lot of ideas there. Um, I think that people should read the book even if they don't want to play the opening because it te- teaches you a lot about strategy, just about chess in general. That's what I was trying to do.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah, and that gets to my questions about the structure which which I did enjoy and you know obviously I've read my share of opening books and I found it unique in that like you talk you sh- you show sort of like you start with like an anti-example and then right. you start conceptually right. and then only give the
2: concrete right. lines at the end. So right.
0: how how did you decide to arrange the book that way?
2: That's just the way I think. Hmm. Um it doesn't necessarily work in every opening, but from a very young age, they told me that you're supposed to learn the concepts and not, and not the lines. I mean, I, I never, I, I I don't remember ever like actually memorizing lines. You know, maybe just cramming them before a game where I already had had them worked out. But to memorization, to me, is like I, that's not why I play chess, right? I don't, I don't I don't like that, and I, I don't think you need to do that, and I think the exchange french is is an opening where you just have to understand the concepts you don't actually have to memorize a lot of the lines there's a couple of exceptions maybe but it's more conceptually than that so that's how i think about it i don't you know that's how i was learned to think for the beginning i think the scye gambit is also arranged that way um i don't like play i don't like openings where you have to memorize 25 game moves of theory if you're going to make, make a mistake and move 23 you lose yeah you know it's just not for me could be for others but
0: and obviously you've seen your son Mitch uh, climb up yes. climb up the ranks um I'm curious what advice you've given him and how you see someone from his generation he's a college student correct Yeah. Um, how you see someone from his generation approaching openings
2: um well so in terms of openings right i think that once you get to a certain level like if you're like 15 1600 1700 you can just Get away with kind of approximate ideas. Once you're at a master level, you got to have your repertoire. Like I have in the, in the end of the book, I have that repertoire file. Mm-hmm. Kind of like it's almost like a database. Yeah, file
0: like it should be just... a PGN. <laughs> like it's it's everything yeah, well, but it, a PGN. Yeah, it is.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, I made it. a PGN, yeah. obviously, but but uh, you got to have that, and you got to have you know end games are still very important. I think most important, and I should talk about some of the end game Oh right, yeah, as well, but. But the um, openings, you know, I never considered myself an opening specialist. But when you come down to it, you know, my style in the opening has been: you got to be solid. Don't play openings that you don't remember. If you if you don't remember an opening, find a sideline which is reasonable. If you're white, it shouldn't be that hard to do that. Uh, if you're black, it could be a little harder, but. If you play an opening you don't remember and there's theory there you don't know it, you're going to be in trouble against stronger players. And frankly, you're not going to learn anything because you're going to just lose out of the opening or you're going to get a bad position. So openings are important at a certain level. So Mitch is actually working more on openings now than he, than he did before. Um, but I think until a certain level, until like 2000 or something, it's much more important to <clears throat> to learn the end game. It's much more to me. It's much more important to so. I think the most important thing in chess is to have the passion for it, to enjoy it. If you're not enjoying your work, you're not enjoying your chess study, you're not going to improve because you're not going to be motivated and you're not going to see that as a positive experience. So for me, you know, different people find enjoyment from different things. Some people like wild attacks. Some people like combinations. I do too. For me, the end game has always been like the, the... you know, endgame studies where you know a knight is stronger than a queen, or a bishop, let's say is stronger than a queen, or something like that, right? Um, material, you know, energy over matter, things things like that arouse certain emotion, certain you know, excitement, um, and make things interesting. So for me, that's been one of the one of the things that makes chess interesting for me. And so I so for me, endgame study was never a chore. It was always something that I look forward to. And
0: and you're getting deep you in know, the weeds working on uh, Dvoretsky's manual with Carsten uh, Mueller.
2: Yeah. So so actually, the, the Dvoretsky work. I mean, I also should mention that I've that I'm and one of the re, one of the ways I got into that project is I was writing um, a column. I'm, I'm still writing a column every every issue for the American Chess Magazine. You're probably familiar with the magazine. Yes. Uh, I write an endgame column for them, uh, which is very, again, very interesting for me to write because I always find new things there, and it's it's extremely um, fascinating to go over these endgames from the past, and maybe not even so much distant past, like even like fischer spasky that era, and then going going through them with a modern approach with modern computer, you know, like most people probably don't know that the famous tenth game of fischer spasky which was widely considered one of his best games, at Rui Lopez. Um, there were five consecutive errors there, two by Fisher, three by Spassky, between half moves from 38 to 40. So Fisher misses a win, Spassky, Spassky misses a draw, Fisher misses a win, Spassky makes a mistake. It's a draw, Fischer, you know, a loss, and then Fisher misses the win, five in a row. That's, it's, it's really interesting to see how endgame theory and endgame practice has changed, and our understanding of the endgame has changed, and it's so much better now um so i learned a lot about end games recently and i think you know hannon felt that it was that it would be for for that reason and also because um i had i had known mark Foretsky personally we speak the same language he wrote his book in russian and it's it's um it's it's it'll be easier for me to understand what he meant because a lot of times, like, you know, all these variations that he gives, right, he says certain things. But when you kind of know the language, you know the person, you have a better idea what he meant. So my, my job was. Carsten Mueller is the, certainly the world's foremost endgame specialist, far, far above me. <laughs> but um, And he did a lot of work to go to find mistakes in the original um, Dem 4, the fourth edition. So he found many mistakes and he corrected them. I found some more mistakes and corrected them, but he did like ninety-five percent of that work. Um, and then my my contribution was to kind of put the whole the whole product, which had changed considerably because there was some new theory, uh, some new new theoretical positions and rook endings, which you hadn't had completely revised um, annotations to some games, like the famous Rubinstein game got totally new annotations. And my my task was to put it into language the way that Vareski would have done it, right. And that's and I think that mix worked out really well, with like Carson working on the, you know, the physics, so to speak, and I'm kind of more the lyrical expert. You know, sounds fun. Yeah. Um, so that I think that that mix worked out really well, and I think it came out, you know, it it's a it's a fundamental work. It's really good. And then we worked we we, you know, people kind of thought, well, this is getting really big. There's so much theory now. Maybe it's better to make kind of a light version somebody came up with an idea of, you know, let's make a kind of fast track version. So we did that as well. So now there's like a, a shorter version, which I always, I, I call it like the, you know, the, ter- the tournament version. I, I take it to tournaments. all think it's, 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 you know, it fits in a, like a little, you know, notebook kind of thing. It doesn't, you don't even have to take a suitcase or anything. Right. It mm-hmm. fits in. A, it's really, really short. So, I, I bring that. I always bring a, a copy of some Varese book to tournaments, just as, a, as karma, because you gotta you gotta have you gotta have that. Um, and actually, I should mention that um, I'm now working with Carson on another book, another endgame book, an endgame exercise book, which we're working on now. Uh, we are hasn't been so. I'm, I'm writing. We're kind of jointly writing it. It's a good project. And it's an exciting project, and um. It will probably be published next year, although I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, guarantee that. But it's probably sometime next year it will be
0: published. All right, sounds good. Yeah, something something to look forward to. Yeah. For, for sure.
2: Um,
0: so just a just a couple more questions, Alex. This is this yeah. has been amazing. Number one, uh, what's your tournament schedule? What do you have coming up?
2: Sure. So um, yeah, I mean, I we, we, I played in Norway next. Next week, next to two weeks, two weeks from now, I'm playing in Washington International. Oh, fun. With DC, Mitch. Yeah. Um Mitch is gonna go back to school then. He's with me, you know, for the summer. Um, I'm probably gonna play in either the New Jersey Open or the New York State or something on Labor Day, somewhere there. You know, part of it is that I have to come to the city about once every two months for work. as, as you mentioned, I live in Tennessee. I'm working remotely. Um, and, you know, so I, so kind of the, the arrangement I have is I kind of come back and, and spend a couple of weeks or spend a week every couple of months in New York. I try to combine that with chess tournaments. So, so I'm going to play in the Washington International, then probably something on Labor Day, coming back, Tennessee Open again. Um, I'm playing the U.S. Masters this year again at the end of November, where I did really well last year. I hope to repeat that um i'm playing in a fide tournament in indianapolis um in september so i have a pretty busy schedule with chess yeah i don't know how i'm going to fit the book writing too <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know how you do it all already but that sounds I have great no idea. Yeah. yeah
0: unfortunately i think i'm going to miss you at all those events despite even the new jersey open is well, an hour from me I but will. i'll be uh, well um,
2: tell me tell me where you'll be and maybe I'll yeah
0: well i uh, will try to make it we'll up. Link up for sure um, sooner or later yeah. um and out of curiosity alex um why did you move to tennessee
2: Oh, that was, um, well, that was more of a kind of family decision, but we wanted to move out of the East Coast for a while. And it just so happened that, you know, well, just for mostly for family reasons, it just kind of happened that
0: way. Gotcha.
2: But yeah, yeah, you know, still getting settled, but it's good
0: and my last question i think alex i mean you've told some some amazing stories about korchnoi and tal and obviously yeah. your simon with kasparov um are are there yeah. have we left any on the cutting room floor are there any sort of like
2: similar well um yeah actually i do i do want to i do want to mention one topic that is kind of very front and center in everybody's mind because i think i have an opinion there which might be interesting
0: oh i think i saw your facebook <coughs> post about this if this is yeah. what i
2: think okay go ahead right so yeah, so Magnus Carlson, right? So he's so what he did first of all is unprecedented. There, you can't compare it to what Kasparov did in '93 because he didn't refuse to play the match; he just decided to play not for FIDE. That's different than Carlson saying, "I don't want to play the match." Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't join his. He didn't say, "Oh yeah, I'll play the match, but it's not FIDE. I'll play." No, that's not what he said. Right? It's it's also very different from Bobby Fischer. You can't compare it to that. Bobby Fischer just quit. Carlson is not quitting. On the other hand, I don't think he owes the chess world anything. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to like expect him to do it, and and I think it's it's fair to say that these two world championship, a world champion match every two years, is too much. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say, but I think he's making a mistake in spite of that, and here's why. So I think that, you know, it's. He's playing Nepo, right? He was he was playing Nepo. He beat him easily last time. It's not it wouldn't be so easy this time. He'd have to prepare. But I think that people will perceive the this as him basically not being sure that he can do it, and not being sure in his ability to continue defending his title every time. That there's at least a little bit of thought of that. Like other, if he thought that he would beat him with hundred percent, he'd beat him by four points last time. Why should you be, be worried playing him this time? If he thought that there was a 100% chance he would win, I think he would play. I think people would perceive it that way. And why is that important? Because I think people would play better against him now. Yeah, I could see the second. A lot of it is psychology. A lot Psychology is, is so much in chess. You know, you hear like the rating, like why are people concerned about their ratings? It's not just for status. It's because if you're sitting at the board with a higher rating, you're more intimidating to your opponent. You know, for example, Ilya Nizhnik recently won two tournaments with a 9-0 score. You don't think his rating has something to do with the fact he's 2,700? His opponents are 2,400? You don't think they come into the game thinking that they're already a victim in the beginning? Now Carlson's opponents are going say, ah, he might be worried. He's not super good anymore. Yeah, I'm not so and sure. And they're going to start <laughs> – that's my opinion. And they're yeah. going to start playing better. They're going to start playing better, I'm, and he's not going to have as big – he's going to – come closer to the, to the pack. And I think that my prediction is in two years, he's not going to be number one.
0: Yeah. I, I, I would take the other side of that, but uh, absolutely with full, re- I think most people would.
2: with full I respect for, uh, for your
0: opinion. Yeah. And, and one thing I would yeah. just mention um, is I think that it's true that maybe it reflects a shred of doubt about, La, you know, his prospects in, in a perspective, uh, rematch with Nepo. Right. But I think that's only because he doesn't want to do the work. Like I think he thinks he can't just show up and win. Or at least he would be at greater risk if he doesn't do the work. But you gotta do the work. You always have to do the work. Yeah. Chess. But I don't know.
2: Preparing for any term you've played 10 different people are you doing less work than you're doing for one person? I think
0: I, don't think I so. from what the from what the Peter Hein Nielsen's of the world say, I think that you do do less work for getting ready for tata steel than than you do or at least different work than you do for getting ready for a world championship match well because it's less important yeah and and you can be more creative so, okay. you can um
2: so there you go so he's not he's not prepared to play in the board. Anyway, i'm not, i'm i know it's an i know it's an outside i know it's a um what's the word uh, not not the most yeah not the most popular not the most common opinion and, but at least I've said it and time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll know. We'll know for sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: We will. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, it could be like he obviously has an
2: amazing life. So, um, yes. Yes. And it, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I just think he's making a mistake. I think he's, and he's doing, he's doing what he thinks is right. And I don't blame him at all. I mean, he's, I understand. I, I can understand where he's coming from. I just think it's a mistake. Yeah. And, and for
0: posterity, by the way, we should say we're recording this on July 29th. So anything that happens with Magnus in the Olympiad, um, yeah, exactly. he hasn't, he today was round one and no. he didn't play. Um, so, right. so we don't, right. the story will start to be written even tomorrow,
2: but, uh, well, it'll be a long story. I'm sure. Yes, it will.
0: Well, Alex, this has been amazing. Some, some awesome stories. And yeah, I know I'm glad that you're so active because I mean, sooner or later I will get to say hi to you, uh, in, in a tournament <laughs> in person.
2: Yeah.
0: And f- well, and for listeners who would like to reach out to you um, what's the best way for them to, to
2: do that uh, you can look me up on Facebook I have an email account a fish com, which is public um, you can go to the, I have a website which I don't really I mean, people don't really use that much but it's out there you know people can reach me at. you know it's public I don't I don't have a problem with that uh, and yeah I'm I'm, I'm I go on Facebook sometimes.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, good luck to you and Mitch in the upcoming tournaments. And- well, thank you,
2: thank you very much for having me on. It was it was quite exciting to be on, and um, I'm I'm happy to be a part of it.
0: Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media: beneficial One on Twitter at Perpetual Chess on Instagram and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me ben at perpetualchesspod.com and of course last but not least I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games answering questions stuff like that and you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference so but most of all thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode